It will be no surprise to anyone who knows me that I'm crying now. Thank you so much. Uh, The answer to the question you're too polite to ask is 45. I am 45 years old, and if you had told me that on my 45th birthday I would have the rare gift of doing this twice in one day, I wouldn't have believed it, but I'm so grateful I would not spend my birthday any other way. Well, that's not entirely true. I do also intend to spend it not cooking and a few other things, but (laughs) this is a great way to start it, so thank you. Uh, Also, I think my family was like, oh man, she's going to be so busy all day long. We're not going to have to bring our A game until the weekend. So everybody ended up winning. It was good. Um, So this week we got to take a look at at a pretty uncomfortable topic, um, temptation, something that we are all susceptible to and something that we need to be educated on if we're going to stand any chance of getting any better at dealing with it. But let's back up for just a second and put ourselves where we need to be in this book by taking a look at what we talked about in the last weeks leading up to this. We talked about how the book of James was one in which James wants us to understand the marks of genuine faith. Uh, Not so that we can turn to our neighbor and say, are you for real or not? But so that we can look at ourselves and ask, do we look like maturing believers? Because the people that James were addressing were not maturing believers. Not because they were lazy or slow, but because the church was brand new. And so he's pointing out to them, this is what you should be moving toward. And he's faithfully doing so. And each week he's going to tell us something else that is a mark of genuine belief. And so last week we learned that a mark of genuine belief, a watermark, as I showed you on the $20 bill, something that we can tell the difference between a counterfeit and the real thing, is that genuine faith perseveres in trials. It perseveres in trials. And we saw that there was a progression there, that um, faith comes and then it is tested by trials. And then steadfastness is born out of that, which leads us to maturity. And what maturity is, ultimately, is that abundant life that Jesus spoke of in John chapter 10. It is a life where we are able to look at our circumstances differently than those who live apart from Christ. Because we see that even a trial is something that the Lord can use to bring about something good in our lives. And we'll talk more about that um, as we move into the lesson today. And as we saw last week, he does not say, count it all joy if you encounter trials, but he says, when, and we We looked at how, in fact, it is a little preached fact that the Christian life will be characterized by difficulty, that we should expect it because it will come to us just through circumstance, but it will also come to us because of persecution, because people will not like the message that we have to bear, but it should be our expectation as followers of Christ, not that the abundant life means life here on earth is one of ease. But the abundant life means that the life we live here is all pointing us toward a harvest that will be reaped of good and perfect things that come to us from the Lord. So it was not if trials come, it was when trials come. So it may not surprise you that when we pick up in verse 13 this week, James says, let no one say when he is tempted, not let no one say if he is tempted, because just as trials are a certainty, in a fallen world, temptation is a certainty as well. Now, why do you think that James moves from a discussion of trials immediately into a discussion of temptations? I think a good reason is because so often when we hit a trial, we immediately find ourselves tempted as well. 
If you think about the story of Jesus in the Gospels, you may remember that immediately after his baptism, the Spirit, it says, sent him into the wilderness for a time of what? Testing, right? So Jesus goes and is tested in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. He fasts. And then what happens at the end of that time? He is tempted. So you have a test that is linked to a temptation. Satan shows up and he tempts Jesus. And we're going to talk a little bit in a minute about what the difference is between Jesus being tempted and you and me being tempted. Because there is a difference in how that looks. But we see so often this relationship between trials and temptations. If you think about the story of the Israelites after the exodus from Egypt, what happens? They too are led into the desert because that's what the temptation of Jesus is picturing is the same thing. They are led into the desert for a time of trying by the Lord. The Lord is the reason that they end up in the wilderness. That's where they come when they're led out of bondage. And immediately they are tempted. They are tempted to doubt that God is who he said he is. And do they pass or do they fail? They blow it. They immediately begin to whine about there's no food and there's no water. All of these things that they would know the Lord intends for them to have if they rested in the truth of his character and remembered what he had done for them just moments before. But what do they say? We should go back to Egypt. It was better there. So they are tempted to look over their shoulder toward what was. They are tempted to look around and say, maybe... Good and perfect gifts come from somewhere other than the Father. So all of us encounters temptation, and we encounter it because of that first temptation that you had a chance to look at this week in your homework. And so we looked in your homework at the pattern that we saw in Scripture with Eve and with Achan and with David, right? And you saw how there's a cycle to sin. What's the beginning of it? I see it. I desire it. I take it, and then what happens? There are consequences that spread. And that was a uniform pattern in all of those stories. And it's an important one for us to understand. I see it, I want it, I take it. I see it, I want it, I take it. Because we all know how this pattern works, don't we? So... um, In my own recent experience, we're not car people in our family. We drive cruddy cars. The only reason I have a non-cruddy car currently is because we got caught in a hailstorm last year, and it totaled my car. That's how bad it was. I'm shrieking like a little girl in the front seat while these giant, it was like apocalyptic hail, is hitting the car. And the kids are just, Mom, calm down. Why are you freaking out? And I was like, because we're on the highway. We may not have a windshield in a few minutes. And so everybody mocked me robustly, if that tells you anything about our family dynamic. And it's a real safe place for all of us. And and then sure enough, two days later, the insurance adjuster said, your car is totaled. And I'm like, booyah! (laughs) Told you, suckers. So... um, Without even trying, we ended up with a car that didn't have scratches on it. We didn't know what to do with ourselves. Typically, you know, someone door dings us and we're... We, th- one of the children's teachers was in a parking spot next to us and she hadn't seen us, but they're like, oh, look, it's Mrs. So-and-so. And she gets out of her car and just, gush, like, slams the door into our car, looks, and just walks into the, you know... But, I mean, and we, we were all... 
But we laughed because our car, who would know? Who would know which door ding was hers and was someone else's? You know, we're, just, we're not fancy about the cars. But I do actually, and then you get the new car and you're like, nobody touched the car. And I, it's, it's exhausting. Like, I just want to get to the point where I don't care anymore. But um, last weekend, I was up in Detroit for a speaking thing, and I got to stay with my brother. He lives in Detroit, and he works uh, in the auto industry. He has his whole life uh, out of, outside of college. And so his very favorite thing to do in the world is to go to the Detroit Auto Show. And if you have never been to the Detroit Auto Show, like maybe you've gone to the one at the State Fair, it's nice. But there's nothing like the Detroit Auto Show. So I agreed to go with him mainly because his family was like, good, you go with him. We don't want to stare at motors while he's totally silent for 10 minutes having a religious experience. So we went to the Detroit Auto Show and nothing could prepare me for the way they do the auto show. It was a festival of light and sound and women in dresses that you probably don't need to wear in public. And it was just, there were people whose whole job for the however many weeks that the show goes on is to come out and dust every fingerprint. All, you know, the cars look fantastic. So you would walk up and you'd gum it all up looking in the windows and sitting in the seats. And then this sweet woman would come out and she'd clean it all up for the next person. So that every time you walked up to a car, it was just perfection. And my brother would tell me about, you know, the fuel injection, or he would tell me about how the new Ford F-150 is a, an aluminum frame, and so you're going to get better mileage and blah, blah, blah. I mean, that's his whole, his whole thing is, is, you know, emissions and, and things that I don't even understand. So, uh, but what I realized was I walked into the auto show uh, not having any, anything in me that, that wanted a new car. And I walked out thinking, well, maybe... Maybe the Maserati, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. Could be. Because what, what does the auto show know? What do all marketers know? They know that we are willing to tell a lie to ourselves, and the lie is this. It doesn't hurt to look. It doesn't hurt to look. I'll just go look. I, don't, I have the newest car I will have for the next 10 years. If I were ever impervious to the beauties and the wonders of the Detroit Auto Show, it should be now. And I walked through that and I thought, maybe, gosh, well, maybe Jeff needs this car. You know, tell me more about this car. And so this is what we see with this cycle of sin in Scripture, this I see it, I want it, I take it. I see it, I want it, I take it. And we think that the place where we should do battle with temptation is when we hit I want it. But what's the truth? If we just didn't see it quite so much, We'd never have to get to the place where we're battling with our desires. And so when we talk about when we, oh, I'm talking about temptation again. When we talk about temptation, we have to see it as something that happens in stages. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about the eyes. And he says that the eyes are the way that things get inside of our head. Okay, he says the eye is the lamp of the body, Matthew 6, 22 and 23. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of shiny new cars. No, it says full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Your eyes are the entry point. And you remember in Genesis chapter 3 what Eve did. She looked at it. She turned, and it wasn't just that she happened to see it out of the corner of her eye. 
she gazed on it. And when we direct our gaze at that thing that we know we have a weakness for, or maybe we don't even realize we have a weakness for it, but then immediately begin to feel that draw, that is the time when we can do battle with temptation while it is still an external thing before our desires attach to it. So let's read what James has to say about temptation, and then we'll take a look at how this builds out. Verse 13, James chapter 1 says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So notice what was just given to us here. Last week we saw a progression. We saw that we have faith that then is tested by trials, which brings about steadfastness, which ends in what? Maturity, right? And I told you that's the abundant life is what that maturity is. It's the best kind of life we can have here on earth where we view the world correctly and we act in ways that are obedient and that honor the will of God. So faith leads to trials, which leads to steadfastness, which leads to maturity or abundant life. And now James has just given us another set of progressions here. He says that desire then meets temptation, which leads to sin, which when it is conceived and full grown, leads to death. Do you see these opposing ideas here? Where do you think temptation is going to take you? It's going to take you to the grave, to a spiritual death. Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Okay, so I had you look up in your homework this week some of those familiar passages, I hope familiar now, from 1 John, if you were in the study last time. Uh, God is light in him. There is no darkness. God is light in him. There is no darkness. God cannot be tempted with evil because God does not have in him a desire that is already bent toward evil. He has no evil desires. But you and I, because of original sin, because of that story that you read in Genesis chapter 3, are born wanting the wrong thing. God is not like that. And we talked last week about how God gives wisdom to all who ask. Why? Because God holds all wisdom. And we said that wisdom was knowing how to make the best decisions with the facts. So how many facts does God have? All of the facts, right? So when you go to, let's just say you go to, uh, this is a terrible example, to Wendy's and you want to eat healthy. So you get in there and you're like, okay, well, there's this choice or this choice, and I'm I'm pretty sure this one has fewer calories than this, but I'm not entirely sure. And maybe you look it up on your phone, or maybe you're just too lazy, so you just go ahead and order, right? So what do you do? You try to make a good choice with as many facts as you have, but we all know they're kind of funny about what they tell you about what's in it, and later you find out that it was basically, you know, they'd shove nicotine into it for no reason or something. So... (laughs) So, but what we do is we try to apply wisdom as best we can with the facts that we have. But in God's case, he has all of the facts. Like you can't conceal anything from him. Not only does he have all the facts, but he holds all wisdom. 
And so when you and I are tempted, what we think is, okay, well, let's see. So tempting is all about concealing some of what is really going on, right? I mean, that was what happened in in the garden with the serpent is he kind of gives Eve sort of this half-truth that she's got to kind of navigate through. And because she already wants to do the thing that he's told her to do, she takes a few of the facts and she chooses wrongly with no consideration for the consequences, But think about any time you've ever been tempted to do something, you've been like, no, I'm good. And you walk away and you do the right thing. Why is that? And it may be something that you've been tempted by before and you blew it originally. Why the next time it comes around, why are you better at resisting temptation? Probably because you're a good student of the consequences. So maybe you went to Wendy's 583 times and made the wrong choice and your pants didn't fit anymore. So then what, what, that makes you not want to go there anymore, right? Because you studied the consequences. You weighed the outcomes. And he said, no, I, I'm good. I think I, it, it kills your desire for that thing. Because you learn to desire something better. But in, in God's case, he doesn't ever learn what the consequences are because he already fully comprehends the consequence of any wrong choice. Which is why temptation just has no pull over him. And this is why when we see Jesus in the wilderness, you notice when the devil tempts Jesus, is Jesus like, oh, let me think about that a little bit. No, he immediately responds with scripture, doesn't he? And why is that? Because he does not have this internal broken set of desires that you and I have. Is he fully human? Yes, but he is fully human and yet sinless. We can't even figure out how that would work. Because we were born with broken desires. And so when we are tempted and our eyes see that thing that we want, we invite it in. And we we kind of mull it around a little bit. But in Jesus' case, he sees it. He knows exactly what the outcome would be of any wrong choice. Because he's sinless. And so it just has no appeal to him. He would never choose it because there is nothing about it that is attractive because he understands clearly the consequences of sin. But you and I, we talk ourselves out of the consequences. We're like, oh, it'll probably be fine. Probably won't hurt to look. Super Target is predicated on the concept that it hurts to look. (laughs) Because you know what I do? Here's, Here's what I do. I need eggs. Where can I get me some eggs? Well, I could go to Tom Thumb. Or I could go to the place where there are sweaters hanging by the checkout. And then I come home with sweaters and eggs. Life's essentials. Marketing knows that we will want it if we see it. And what they do is they try to inflame our desires. But Jesus Christ's desires were not capable of being inflamed because he already listened desired the better thing. And so when we begin to do battle with our desires, which James, you may have noticed, says that's your problem. Your problem is your own evil desires. And so when we go to do battle with our own evil desires, we don't just keep beating down our evil desires. We start learning to desire the better thing. That's why you're here That's why we're in God's word is so that you can learn to desire the better thing. How do we learn to desire the bad thing? I mean, on the one hand, it's really natural for us. We just gravitate towards us. But there's more to it than that. 
So it says each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And notice that lured and enticed, okay? Those are hunting and fishing terms. They mean there is a bait that is around a hook and you can't see the hook, but you like the bait, so you go for it. So there's this idea of concealment, of deceit, and this idea that there is a progression. So we are not tempted by God. God allows temptation to come to us because he wants us to grow from it, and he wants us to learn to hate sin. And ultimately, failing and giving in to temptation teaches us to hate sin if we are a new creation. So we are lured and enticed by our own desires. Not tempted by God, but lured and enticed by our own desires. And we invite this desire to grow and to bloom. So I started thinking about about this, and I started thinking about how in Genesis chapter 4, we have the story of uh, Cain and Abel. Real happy family tale there. And God says to Cain before he kills his brother, you know, he gives him a chance to walk away. And he says to him this, In Genesis 4, 7, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So what's the picture we get there of sin? It is a predator that is ready to pounce. Now, when I walk into Target, do I think of that whole area of women's clothing as predatory and waiting to pounce on me? No, I don't. And I think those people who are on those hoarding shows, they were me one day just going to get eggs. And the next thing they knew, they couldn't get out of their house because it had so many sweaters in it. So I read this story about a guy who raised a Bengal tiger in a New York apartment. He got it as a, a kitten, I guess that's what you call a baby tiger, and then he raised it. None of his neighbors knew it was in there. Nobody knew that he was raising it, and it grew to be 500 pounds because that's the size that a Bengal tiger grows to be. And he slept with the tiger, and he petted the tiger, and he believed that he and the tiger had a connection. Until one day he turns up in the emergency room with bite marks and claw marks. You know, he's been attacked. And you know what he did when he was in the emergency room? He told them that a pit bull had attacked him because he didn't want anyone to know that he had a predator living in his apartment that he had called a friend. So I read that story and I think, he's crazy. Who would live in a, Manhattan, in a, in a high-rise apartment with a 500-pound tiger and think that was going to turn out well? But the thing is, is that he didn't start out with a 500-pound Bengal tiger. He started out with a little, tiny, precious cat. And over time, his desire to have relationship with it and to keep it with him It grew into something that was beyond his control. And even as it endangered his life, he sought to cover it up. That's me. That is me. And when you think about temptation and these things that you think are small and controllable and domesticated now, how many of them, as you invest in, your, in them and you attach your affections to them over and over again, how many of them are turning into 500-pound Bengal tigers of which it is only a matter of time before they pounce? 
You know, this week in the news was that terribly tragic story about Philip, Philip Seymour Hoffman. And I read it, I still, I can't stop being sad about it. I think because he had three kids and because I really thought he was a great actor. But the idea that you would be found, I mean, he was not just found dead, he was found in his shame with the needle in his arm and the evidence lying all around that yet again in a New York apartment someone had raised a 500-pound Bengal tiger. Because you know it started with one pill on one bad day. And I think we read those stories and you just say, I mean, heroin, how do you get to heroin? But the thing is, is you get there one day at a time. You get there one more desire attached to the wrong thing at a time, over and over again, until before you know it, it is so much bigger than you and so beyond your control. And so what James says to us is understand this process. Understand that you are being lured and you are being enticed. You are being lured and enticed. But he said this other interesting thing back in verse 13 that we can't just pass over. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. And you read that and you're like, who would ever, who would ever say that? Who would ever say that? But let's look back at Genesis chapter 3 and see who exactly would say that. Genesis chapter 3, you can turn there with me. This is immediately following... The story that you looked at this week where Eve saw and wanted and took. And we're now to the part where the consequences are beginning to spread. Genesis 3 starting in verse 8 says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. No, see, I got bitten by a pit bull. That's what it was. It wasn't a tiger. Do you see this? The concealment. Verse 9, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And the man said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Um, Dude, you've been naked this whole time. (laughs) Hadn't bugged me. Clearly it's bothering you. Concealment has begun. Verse 11, God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now, I told you, God holds all knowledge and he holds all wisdom. So what's going on here? The Lord is gently calling the man and the woman to account. He's giving them an opportunity as he will give to Cain only a chapter later of, hey, come clean with me. Come clean with me where your heart is. And so let's see what happens. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Verse 12, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Huh. And so like you read that and your first thought is, he just blamed the woman. He's a buck passer. And she's getting ready to pass the buck too, right? She's going to say, what does she say? Uh, Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, oh, the serpent deceived me and I ate. You get it? It was this pit bull, like, came out of nowhere. And so the buck passing begins, but if you look more closely at what Adam says, he's actually not blaming the woman at all, is he? The woman whom you gave to be with me. You did this, God. I blame you. You tempted me. So don't think if in this very first story... 
which is both a true story and an archetypal story, a story intended to teach us something about ourselves. Don't think that if Adam could place blame on God that you can't too. Lord, why, you know, I'm, I'm a victim of my circumstances here. Why did you allow these circumstances to come my way? This is a setup. You wanted me to fail. And so James reminds us very carefully, don't ever say, I am being tempted by God. Because it's not coming from outside. It is an internal problem. You think your enemy is external? Your enemy is inside of you. So verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So what, what should we do? What should we do then with these baby Bengal tigers that are in our lives? What should we do with them? Should we leash train them? Should we keep them always at arm's length? but always under our control and just not pay enough attention to them for them to grow into something that is beyond our ability to manage. Because that's what a lot of us do. That's what a lot of us do with sin, is we say, I know it's bad to become a heroin addict, but I'm still going to have a drink more often than I should. Because I'm not like that. And so we look for that worst case example and we tell ourselves that our smaller temptations are manageable. But you get enough of those baby Bengal tigers all in one room, you got a bad situation on your hands. It is not possible for us to keep sin safely at arm's length, but where we can reach it if we want it. Listen to 1 Corinthians 10, 13 and 14. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Okay, we actually, we're like, oh, good. But then on the other hand, we're like, no, see, you don't understand. This temptation was just too great for me. I mean, I was just a victim here. I was so helpless. I mean, what could I do? I just fell in love. Or I just, you know, it just jumped into my cart. You know, it just drove itself out of the showroom into my garage. I'm a victim here. And so what we like to tell ourselves that we were overpowered, that we were overcome, and what could we do? I'm only human, right? And so this is both good news and bad news. It means I'm able to do something about it, which is like, oh, good, that's good. But unless I love the temptation, then it's a conviction. You know what? You're able to do something about that. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. You think you're a special case? You are as plain vanilla as the person sitting next to you. We all are broken in the same way and we all go through the same arguments in our heads. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. You are not the exception to the rule. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So you've probably heard these verses before with regard to temptation. God will provide a way out. We love that. Give me the way out. Sometimes we're not looking for the way out. Can we be honest about that? But what what I would love to see is any time we talk about these verses, verse 13, that we add verse 14 on. Because listen to verse 14. So he's just said, with the temptation, God will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. But listen to verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. 
Flee, run away, run away from the tiger. It hurts to look. Don't put yourself in the path of things that are going to draw you closer into sin. So there are two ways you can think about sin. And the people of Jesus' time thought about them in terms of a Bengal tiger on a leash. Where's the line? Where's that line for sin? Is it right here? Is this what murder looks like? Murder is killing someone? Then I won't do that. I'll just stand right here. And I'll be verbally abusive and I'll be physically abusive and I'll do everything I can get away with without actually committing the sin of murder. And then I can say, I can check that command of the Ten Commandments off the list and I'm righteous. I'll keep that Bengal tiger right here on a leash and everything will go fine for me. So there's that attitude. Where's the line? How close can I get to it? And then there's the attitude we see here in 1 Corinthians 10 that says, Oh, is there sin somewhere over there? Then I'm running this way. Like if you were at the Dallas Zoo and someone said, the tiger is out of his cage, would you say, oh, well, is he over this way? Well, let me just go get a look at that and let me get my phone out and film it. Heck no, you would run the other way. And so the reason that we don't flee is because we don't really believe how dangerous sin is. And what God is telling you is it is crouching. It wants to devour you. So rather than avoid sin, rather than keep the tiger on a leash, we flee. We get out of there. Because desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So all those messages you hear out there about follow your heart, trust your heart, you got to do what your heart leads you to do, have overlooked this key detail that Jeremiah 17, 9 says that above all your heart is deceitful and desperately wicked who can know it. It is deceitful. It throws the lure. It loves to take the bait. But then we have that other verse that says, Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Not that he will give you everything you desire, but that he will change your desire for sin into a desire for him. And so when we come to Bible study, that's what we're working on. Because when I went to the auto show, I didn't care about the new Ford F-150 or its mileage or how many, you know, safety crashes it had passed. I didn't care. But when I left, I had a special warm spot in my heart for the Ford F-150 pickup. Do you know why? Because the more I learned about it, the more I grew in my appreciation for it. And this is what we talk about with Bible study all of the time. If you want to set your heart on things above, you have to learn about things above. You have to set your sights on things that are better. You have to set your sights on God himself. He is there for you to see in his word, and that is why we come here every week. So desire leads to temptation, that leads to sin, that leads to death. Jesus speaks of a narrow road that is hard and a broad road that is easy. That is the broad road that is easy. Where I see it, I want it, I take it. I see it, I want it, I take it. I see it, I want it, I take it. All the way to my grave. But there is a narrow and a hard road that is the better road. And it is the one that he told us about last week. It is a faith that is perfected in trials, that grows into steadfastness, that grows into maturity. 
fewer things to set your sights on. Set your heart on things above. A narrow road and a hard road, but a road that we are given grace to walk. So moving on to verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. I'm going to stop right there. We'll say verse 18 for the, for the last bit. So do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. And I asked you in your homework, what does he not want them to be deceived about? Because we've talked about how basically we are deceived by our desires. And so what does he not want them to be deceived about? Well, he tells you in verse 17, Do not be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and every perfect gift does not come from any source other than the Father. So we are deceived when we look around us and believe that there are good gifts and perfect gifts that exist outside of what the Lord has given us. Eve in the garden. She saw it. She wanted it. She took it. David. He had plenty of wives. Few too many already. But he saw her and he wanted her and he took her. Achan, he had authority in that army. He was probably wealthy already, but he saw and he wanted and he took and he concealed. Why? Because they believed and you and I believe that there are good and perfect gifts out there that God wants to withhold from us and that we can go and get on our own. This is what we tell ourselves. And so James says, don't you dare be deceived. There is no such thing as a good gift or a perfect gift outside of what the Father gives you. Why does God give every good gift? Why does God give every perfect gift? Because God himself is infinitely good and infinitely perfect. He is infinitely holy. And so to think that there are good and perfect gifts that can come from any other source makes no rational sense. You have to take the lure to believe otherwise. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Here echoing the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, Don't store up for yourselves treasures here on earth, but store them up where? Above, in heaven, where moth and rust cannot destroy. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. And I've always heard this. You've probably heard this term before. It makes its way into worship songs. It's a familiar name for God to us. But I think that we have forgotten why it would have been significant to James's listeners. Why is he referred to specifically as the Father of lights? Because what was worshipped by the people of Jesus' time and for times all before and even still to this day, the heavenly bodies, the sun, the moon, and the stars. Why? Because they set their calendar. They determined when the harvest was going to come in. They believed that their well-being depended on worshiping these deities and keeping them happy. So you have the sun god, Ra, right, in Egypt, the goddess of the moon. I mean, these, there are still deities associated with the heavenly bodies. And so we've, if you took the Genesis study, you know that even in the creation narrative, when God says, let there be light, and then it describes the celestial bodies, he never names them. He says a light by day and a light by night, but he never says their names. Do you know why? He will not give glory to anyone other than the one who made them. 
Because God is the Father of lights. And listen to this. This is so cool. With whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. There is no variation or shadow due to change. And so here we have a big contrast to the guy that we talked about last week who was double-minded, right? And all he was about was shifting and changing and being tossed around. But God, in contrast, there is no variation or shadow due to change. And this variation is the idea, you may have heard it um, uh, in the, there's a hymn, there is no shadow of turning with thee, right? No shadow of turning. What does that sound like? Have you ever seen the moon go through its phases? That's what he's saying here. He's saying, you look at the heavenly bodies and you know that they are turning and you can tell by the way the shadow is cast that they themselves are not the source of light, that they are a source of reflected light. Why does the moon have a shadow on it? Because the sun is behind it, right? Is above it. Why do you cast a shadow when you walk outside when the sun is out? Because there is something higher than you, a source of light that is higher than you, that shines on you, and then you cast a shadow. So the significance here of God not casting a shadow or turning is that he is the highest source of light. There is no light behind him that could cause him to cast a shadow. We call this his transcendence. And so James is saying to you, why would you trust anyone other than a transcendent God above whom there is nothing to give you good gifts and to give you perfect gifts? How can you be tempted by anything less? How can you be blown away by the beauty of anything other than that? There is no variation or shadow due to change. Man changes and God remains the same. And we saw that last week, that man is like the grass and the flower that wither and fade. Jesus talks about it in the Sermon on the Mount. It's in the Old Testament. Man changes, he changes, he changes, he lasts for this long. But God, in contrast, does not change. He does not change. And this is a really important thing for us to understand as we talk about temptation. Because if you are someone who has a besetting sin, if there is a temptation that you give into over and over and over again to the point that you're just exhausted with yourself, what is the lie that you begin to believe? This is just who I am. I'm never going to change. Maybe you have a loved one who has something that they battle with over and over and over again. And at some point you grow weary in your prayers and you say, it's just who he is. He'll never change. Lie, lie, lie. It is idolatry to ascribe to a human being something that is only true of God. There is only one who does not change and it is your heavenly father Listen, this is the gospel, people. You have to understand this. Our hope in the gospel is that we worship a God who does not change, but who changes us. Because if we're not capable of change, the whole thing is a lie. But God says that he is in the business of transforming, of changing us into his image. This is the gospel. What is your temptation that has beaten you down? What do you know is crouching on the other side of the door 
you cry out to your father and say, I will not remain stuck in this. Change me. Lord, help me. Cry out to him. That's what he does. He is in the business of bringing about change where no change seems possible. For you, for the people you love, you intercede for them. You ask for his help. And then you look for that better thing. How can we be conformed to the image of someone we never have gazed on? So find his image in his word and learn to love it more than sweaters at Target and F-150 pickup trucks and baby Bengal tigers. Turn your eyes on him. And then he concludes our thought this week in verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. A kind of first fruits. I love the NIV translation here because it says, he chose to give us birth by the word of truth. How, how, how did you have your natural birth take place? Did you choose your mother and father? Did you choose the day? Did I choose February 4th to be the day that I was born? No. I, I didn't have any part in that choice at all. How were you reborn into the kingdom of heaven? You were just told. He chose to give you birth through the word of truth, through Christ. He chose to give you birth through Christ, not of your own choice. You wouldn't have chosen him. Your desires were so broken that you would have chosen death again and again and again. But he chose you of his own will. He chose to give you birth that we should be a first fruits of his creatures. And you looked at that first fruits reference and you saw that it was when the nation of Israel gets out of the desert and they are in the promised land and finally they are able to put down roots and begin to have crops, right? Which is a big deal when you've been wandering around and not able to do that. You can't be a cultivator when you're wandering in the desert. And so they're finally home and they finally begin to be able to be fruitful and multiply And the first fruits offering was the very first yield of the harvest. And it was given to the Lord to say, thank you for these first yields that are an indication that what? There will be a bounty to come. That's what you and I are like. We have been born into life and we are the very beginning of the fruitfulness. Listen to Romans 8, 22 and 23. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. And from that Spirit indwelling you will come change and fruitfulness. And what will fruitfulness look like? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The Lord intends to bring about fruitfulness in your life that will be for your good and for his glory. He wants to set your desires on those things rather than on these lesser things. So I leave you with a couple of thoughts. As you go into your week this week, what is your temptation that you've kept on a leash? 
What is your baby Bengal tiger? And how will you flee from it? And second, what have you believed about yourself could not be changed? Will you confess that sin of idolatry to the Lord, humble yourself before him, and ask him to conform even that to his image? Genuine faith, James is faithful to remind us, resists and flees from temptation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the faithful words of James We confess to you that we feel powerless before temptation because we are so unpracticed at even resisting it, much less fleeing from it. We pray, Father, that we might become more like Christ so that when temptation presents itself, we weigh the consequences enough that we can say, no, it doesn't even interest me. And we run to your word. We pray, Father, that we would become so enamored with a God who is transcendent that all of these incidental things of life would grow, as the hymn says, strangely dim. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.